And welcome to the show. I'm Mike Indes, your host, and we're here uh, again, maybe for the fourth time, with author Brian Gadawa. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Mike. So I know you know people who've been listening to the podcast already know who you are, but we'll give a brief introduction here. Um, you wrote a really great series uh, called The Chronicles of the Nephilim, and now uh, you're working on The Chronicles of the Watchers. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Chronicles of the Watchers. All right. So w- some people who haven't uh, heard any of our interviews or haven't heard words such as Nephilim or Watchers, <laughs> what, what is going on? What, what, are, what are Nephilim? What are Watchers? Yeah, they well, they all all my series co- sort of take place within the same biblical universe, so to speak, where it's based on biblical, you know, it's based on biblical study, but it's definitely uh, you know an interpretation and that I apply, and um, the and and so it, it's based on a couple things. First of all, the Chronicles of the Watchers um, is it's based on two different notions. One is that. In the ancient world and in the Bible itself, we find the term watchers. And if you go to uh, Daniel chapter 10 and um, I think Daniel chapter 2, he talks about the watchers as spiritual beings or principalities or rulers over various authority, earthly authorities or nations, right? So, so for example, in, in Daniel 10, you read about, Daniel talks about how there's the prince of Persia fights with the prince of Greece against, against the prince of Israel, who is Michael. And Michael the archangel is, is un- known and understood as the guardian of Israel. And scholarship will tell you that that word prince in those passages uh, is not earthly prince, but a spiritual heavenly prince. So they're basically saying that there's an earthly authority over Persia, earthly authority over Greece, and an earthly authority over Israel, right? And this notion is, you know, it's not, it, it's only, it's, it's in several pla- places throughout the scripture, not always explicit, but uh, there are a few passages where it sort of spells it out, and then you can understand it in, in context in other passages. Daniel is one of the clear passages. Um, it's the only passages that do use the word watchers. So the concept is that they're watchers over the nations. But who are these watchers, and, and what are they, these spiritual authorities? Well, there are... Um, uh, there's two passages I like to refer to. Um, you know, there's others, but the two big ones are Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32. And in Psalm 82, we read about um, about how there are. Well, let's let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Actually, uh, verses eight through ten. It, Moses is writing, and he says that it, at back at the Tower of Babel, when God was separating, creating the nations, and he's separating the tongues of men. And what was Babel all about? Well, Babel was about after the flood, God judged the earth, and but mankind continued to be so evil that they were uniting in evil and building this tower, and that the evil was so great that it could have destroyed the world, so God decided, I'm going to split mankind up so they can't unify in that evil, right? And he creates the 70 nations of Genesis 10. And those 70 nations, from the Hebrew perspective, were all the Gentile nations, but then it says he he allotted the nations according to the sons of God, but Israel he allotted to himself, or Jacob he allotted to himself. And who are these sons of God? 
Well, if you do a study on the sons of God, you'll find, and I, I write about this in other of my books, but you'll find that it's a technical term that refers to those uh, divine beings of God's heavenly host. And so, in other words, all these angels that we, we use the term angels, but it's pretty imprecise. Uh, angel is merely a generic term for messenger. And so, yeah, there are spiritual beings who are messengers, but they're not all angels in the sense of, you know, an angel is this gen- general term. And so, the, the term that they use is sons of God or B'nai Ha Elohim. And, um, and so, in the Bible, these, these uh, what does it mean to be allotted to the nations? Well, the idea there was that, um, that God was saying, okay, look, mankind is so evil, you're going to keep worshiping these false gods. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to place you under those gods and see how you like it. See, how, see what happens, right? And these sons of God goes back to before the flood in Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God came to earth, violated the heavenly divide of heaven and earth, and they mated with human we- women, and, and they bore them the Nephilim. And the word Nephilim basically means giants, but the ne- Nephilim is sort of like the hybrid result of these, these divine beings who are violating that heavenly divide. And so, um, because they're violating God's created order, that makes them evil. They're fallen. And so, later on in, at Babel, God says, okay, if humankind is going to keep, you know, uh, engaging in this evil, I'm going to place them under the authority of evil beings, these sons of God, and, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that they're, they're the fallen sons of God. Because not all the, you know, not all the sons of God around heaven, God's heavenly host fell. Obviously, there's countless numbers who still worship God, but there's a finite number that actually fell. And so, consequently, God says, okay, I'm, it's sort of like saying, okay, you, you want to worship these false gods, well, then I'll place you under them and see how you like it. And the premise of my series is, is that what if, you know, we, we hear, we read about these ancient gods all the time, right? Like you read about Babylon and you read about Marduk, the king of gods in Babylon, or you read about Canaan. And you hear Baal, the storm god, or Asherah, the wife of El, or Ashtart, the war goddess, you know, these kinds of gods and goddesses. And my premise was, well, what if these gods of the ancient world were, were real, but they were demonic beings, and they weren't gods as we understand gods. They were more like fallen angels, fallen sons of God, who are masquerading as the false gods that are being worshipped. And that's, that makes a lot of sense to me biblically, because there are passages where, uh, and Deuteronomy 32 is one of those, uh, as well as Deuteronomy 14, that talks about these, these gods of Canaan as being demonic. So they're not just an imaginary mytho- mythological uh, you know, being, they're actually something demonically spiritual behind them. And so that's sort of the premise of Chronicles of the Watchers is what um, to to retell, start out with the Bible and retell these stories where the Watchers are are involved. And particularly, um, Jezebel is the first novel in the series, Jezebel, Harlot, Queen of Israel. And in that story, you know, we we don't. We only get glimpses of the spiritual world in the Bible. We don't get a lot of details. So I'm filling it out with some fiction to try to make sense of it theologically. But nevertheless, um, it, we, we're in the ninth century, B.C., Israel. 
we're shortly after Sol- King Solomon, right? And the, the kingdoms have been divided between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And, of course, Solomon's temple was still in Judah, so there's, a, uh, there's you know, enmity between the two nations of, of Israel going on there, Israel and Judah. And they're kind of, maybe they're not at war, but they're definitely at enmity with each other. And um, God has told them to conquer Canaan, and they did at first with Joshua, but then everything creeped back in. And what happened was the Israelites and the Judahites both started to worship these other gods and goddesses. So much so that we find like archaeological examples where they have pretty much standard Israelite households had these little uh, clay figurines of Asherah. And there's examples we find in archaeology where they the most Israelites believed that Yahweh had a wife named Asherah. And Asherah was the Canaanite goddess who was actually supposed to be married to El, their high god, right? But, you know, there's it's syncretism. So Israelites sort of syncretized their religion with the Canaanite religion, and they basically, you know, became apostate. And so they're worshiping other gods and goddesses as well as Yahweh. And so um, we're in this picture where it's a very corrupt apostate world with, with the Jews. And that's when Elijah comes in and starts preaching, you know, to come back to, to Yahweh and such. And so, um, but uh, in that story, Jezebel um, marries into Israel. And, and to sort of set the stage for this, um, you've got uh, Israel is at war with the Aramaeans in the, in the north. And so Israel decides to uh, become an ally with Phoenicia. And Phoenicia is the rich trading merchants on the coast. And that includes the city of Tyre. Tyre was the capital city. So what they do is they, they form an alliance with Tyre. And um, so that the Tyre controls the, uh, the, uh, the sea for economics, you know, purchase and, 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 and merchants, right? And Israel inland uh, protects a a large segment of the King's Highway. And the King's Highway was a road that they used for economic uh, exchange and and, uh, uh, trading and stuff like that, right? Um, And it went all the way from Syria up in the north all the way down to Egypt. So it was very crucial. Well, now Israel teams up with Tyre and they're controlling all the the land, all the... um, sort of the pathways for merchant trade and stuff. And in order to seal the deal, they have a marriage, a marriage alliance. And that is Jezebel, who is the princess or the the daughter of the king of Tyre, marries King Ahab of Israel in order to seal that marriage alliance. And that's sort of the setup, the scenario. But here's what happens is, even though Israelites are worshiping gods and goddesses as well as Yahweh, Jezebel brings Baal worship because Baal worship was real crucial in Phoenicia. And Baal was the storm god of Canaan. He was like the most powerful god. And so she brings in Baal worship to the extent that she even builds a temple of Baal in Israel, in Samaria. And so you've got this major apostasy going on in in Israel. And it's so serious that God sends the first of his major prophets, Elijah, 
to call Israel to repent and, and turn back to him. So this is sort of the big picture scenario that's going on. And in the meantime, so I'm, I'm saying, well, I tell the story in Jezebel of that biblical story that we know, and I sort of flesh it out, and I also integrate a storyline of these gods of Canaan, like what about Baal, what about Asherah? And these are gods that are mentioned in the Bible, but I tell a story about what about these authorities over Canaan. Here they are in Canaan, they're sort of being pushed out by Israel, but the Israelites fall away and start worshiping them. And so it's sort of like they're giving these guys more power by worshiping them instead of Yahweh. What would that look like in the spiritual realm, you know? So I have, um, so I tell a story of the gods and, and them jockeying for power and authority. Meanwhile, the archangels, Michael and the others, are protecting the people of God in the midst of that. So that's, that's the big picture setup that I have uh, throughout the story that tells, you know, the the sort of the angels battling in the heavenly realm while the earthly wars and battles are going on as well. And this is linked up to that ancient uh, Middle Eastern notion of the, the, you know, the, the earthly powers and authorities had over them heavenly uh, powers and authorities. So when there was a war of go- going on on earth, there was also a war going on in heaven. And we, you know, we read about this in various places in the Bible. Daniel was one case, and there's there's many others. But that's sort of a scenario that I, I wanted to sit up. And and my my bad guys, you know, these these gods of Canaan. First of all, you know, the notion of gods, the word gods. When we hear that, you know, uh, modern day evangelicals, we tend to think, oh, that's polytheism. But the Bible uses the term gods of spirit beings. So, in other words, uh, the word gods is Elohim, and it doesn't quite mean the, what, the way we mean the word gods. So, when the Bible uses Elohim or gods, it uses it in reference to dead, dead spirits of humans. It uses, it uses it in reference sometimes to these sons of God, these angels, these divine beings in heaven, and sometimes of God himself, of Yahweh himself. So, that's why you hear the term Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim. He is the God of all gods. So, so it's not a polytheism. It's, you know, it's still monotheism, but there's a recognition that within the spiritual realm, there are these divine beings, and there's a hierarchy of power and authority going on. So my series, Chronicles of Watchers, attempts to sort of, well, what, that might, what, what might that look like? I don't know, obviously, so I have to fictionalize it, but I try to make it theologically accurate so that the story you, you read about these gods reflects the mythology of Canaan and the stories of Baal. And then I integrate that and subvert it and submit it to the biblical worldview. And uh, it's been, it's, you know, so it's very heavily researched and, and I try to be consistent and, and with all those sides of the story and show how they might be integrated spiritually. And that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the big picture of what's going on through, through the whole series, as well as this, the first novel, Jezebel. Well, let me ask you this. So, um, I know it took me a really long time before I was, uh, yeah, I encountered any of this material. You know, you read Genesis 6, and a lot of times, a lot of denominations, Christian denominations, just pass that over, right? It's uh, yeah. the sons of Seth or, or whatever. 
Um, yeah. And so these giants, uh, King of Og, uh, Goliath and his brothers, you know, they're just kind of like anomalies. Um, but after yeah. reading your books and all the research in the back and then that book of just research that you have, it, it's obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, this, these, one of the main storylines that, that goes throughout the entire text. But just for people who are listening, I'd like... He's he's making that up, or he's going to tell us he's in yeah. some weird religion, you know. In in a minute, this you know, what what church, uh, early church fathers uh, believed in this same idea of of the Nephilim and and the Watchers and uh, yeah, those... actually, mo- most of them did until Augustine, and Augustine was the one who, because he came from a pagan mystical background. He was fearful of that in the Bible, so he's the one who brought in the interpretation, well, maybe these are just analogies or metaphors for human authorities or something like that, the human interpretation. And so I think it was mostly out of his influence of being fearful rather than facing the scriptures and what they mean in their own original context, he sort of imposed his own sort of bias on the text. Because otherwise, most of them, uh, most of the church fathers actually had that supernatural interpretation of these sons of God. And I think it's making a comeback now, you know, as you know, Michael Heiser is an evangelical scholar. I'm an evangelical, you know, reformed person, and uh, Heiser is a a Bible-believing scholar who has actually done a lot of the work to bring back this understanding. And the goal is we've got to stop imposing our modern-day paradigms on the Bible. We have to try to understand the Bible through its original context in the ancient world and how what they meant by what they wrote, not what we think it means. And when you do that, you find out that the way they do history, the way they do poetry, the way they do theology is very different from the way we do. We're very more of a scientific and, you know, precise, and they're more poetic. So consequently, you have, for example, in the Bible, there's a there's a linkage, in as there is in the ancient world, between the stars and the and the planets and these sons of God or these Beneha Elohim or the gods. In fact, the ancient world likened the gods to the stars and the planets. They were sort of interchangeable. Why and what is that? Well, that's why um, that's why you you uh, you'll you'll see terms like heavenly host. And we use that term, heavenly host, as, oh, yeah, that's the sun and stars and moon and stuff like that. And sometimes it does mean that in the biblical text. Sometimes, though, it doesn't. It actually means the spirit beings. And so they're, they are interchangeable. They, they're understanding their worldview. That's how they saw it. We don't see that now, but that's how they saw it, and they understood it that way. That's why when you, you read these passages in the Old Testament where – um, a, a nation fights against another nation and say Babylon is destroyed, God uses this language where he says the stars fell from the sky, the s- sky rolled up like a scroll, the moon turned to blood. You know, we automatically assume in our scientific world, that's all, that must be literal, you know. Well, no, of course that didn't happen. The stars can't fall from the sky because it would have destroyed the earth if they did, you know. And 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 it's not, it's it's metaphorical, it's spiritual. In other words, when Babylon was was destroyed, the earthly authorities were overthrown, and so were the spiritual authorities with them. And those spiritual authorities are the heavenly host, the sun, the moon, and the stars. They're linked together in the spiritual world, if that's making sense. Um, So that's sort of – in other words, you see there's a 
bigger, bigger poetic picture going on here in the scriptures. And uh, to understand it spiritually, you have to understand it through their eyes, not through our own scientific eyes. So you're, you're saying the Bible wasn't written to me as a white American living in... Westerner, in, yeah. Wow, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty incredible. Um, before we talk a little bit more about, about the book, just as a side note, because I'm sure some people just cued in on the idea like, wait a second, if the stars are, you know, if things are turning red, falling from the sky, that also sounds like the book of Revelation. You do have writings on uh, an interpretation of Revelation that is is far different, I would say, than most um, evangelicals yeah. believe today. And that information is on your website, um, uh, Godawa.com, right? Yes, absolutely. I write about this in many books. I tend to write, I love writing stories, but I also like writing theology. So you'll find if you go to Godawa.com or go to Amazon, type in my unique name, G-O-D-A-W-A, you'll find all, a lot of my books. And I've written a lot of books about the poetry of, of Old Testament prophecy. My one book is called End Times Bible Prophecy. Yes. And I, tr- I try to explain how the ancient Jewish world how they understood this imagery this these poetry poetic metaphors and stuff and hyperbole in a way that we don't understand it today so yeah i think that we do have a very much of a bias that we assume it's it's just interpreting the bible plainly but it's they, what we don't realize is no you're not you're interpreting it through your grid of a western mind it's plain to you but that's based on an English interpretation that is far removed from the original Hebrew and Greek. And so if you understand it in Hebrew and Greek within their context, it starts to make different sense and different meaning. And that's sort of the goal of all my novels, including Chronicles of the Watcher, is to sort of bring in some of that scholarship. Because I know not, not every Christian likes to study that scholarly stuff and the academic stuff. And, and I, so I, but I, I love both the entertainment and theology, so all of my novels are heavily researched in the Bible and in archaeology and stuff like that. And so what I do is, some of the stuff is so fa- wild, pe- people aren't used to hearing it, that I tend to write either an appendix at the back of the book or an additional book where I get, lay out all this biblical historical research I've done. So, for example, in, um, uh, if you buy the book Jezebel, Harlot Queen of Israel, in there, there's a link where you can get a free version of a companion book called The Spiritual World of Jezebel and Elijah. And that's a 150-page book. You can get it digitally where it, it gives you all the research into the spiritual world and stuff that I did to write the novel. Because there's a lot of wild stuff that you, know, you, you don't necessarily know unless you really do, this, do the hard studying. That's you. You made a ton of great points, and I'll just you know say one more thing, and then we'll we'll talk about the book. But um, one thing that I always you know I've studied Greek and, and Hebrew, and I'm sure you know obviously you have as well. And one thing that's uh, I've heard a lot of people who are scholars in Greek and Hebrew, but they have no idea about the culture, and uh, they that's a problem, right? Because even now, when you go to another country or whatever, even if there's not that much of a language barrier, there's still a huge cultural barrier. Um, and the, Absolutely. I- the idea that we're going back several thousands of years uh, and we think we understand what the language means, um, we, we, we don't. Um, 
So, no. because we don't understand the culture in, in which it was uh, used, you know, and when I took Greek um, with Bill Mounts, you know, Bill Mounts? Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. So, the first thing he said is an online class, you know, he said, after you take this class, you'll have the ability to be authoritatively wrong. And I love that, right? <laughs> because um, we all are like that. You have a little bit of knowledge and, and you know, yes. you think you're an expert on, on, on these subjects. So if somebody's listening and their head's about to explode now because you've already said 10 things, particularly the book of Revelation, uh, you know, that's, that's about to make people lose their mind. I would encourage, <laughs> encourage anyone, if they're still listening and, you know, and they're aggravated, to go and, and look at your website, look at the research. And um, I really appreciate the uh, uh, academic and the very humble way that you approach uh, your research while you're doing this material, because it, it doesn't come off like you're trying to prove a point. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I pre- yeah, that's, that's my goal. And you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer, I'm an author, I'm an artist, and I love, and I'm, I'm an entertainer and a dramatist, you know, I'm all those things, and so I want to write entertaining stories more than anything, stories that entertain, but that also can teach, and, and because I know, I'm kind of like bipolar, I love both art and the intellect, and I, a lot of times it's either one or the other, and I realize that there's a lot of Christians who don't like studying theology and all that, um, and, and that's not for everyone. I get that. But I do love doing that. But I also happen to love storytelling. And I believe that storytelling has, is the most effective means of really changing our lives anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my life has been changed by movies and TV shows I've watched more, far more so than any sermon I've heard and, and, and even some of these theological books I read. Uh, but, you know, the, we're both intellect and emotion, right? And so we're both both of these things. And so I kind of, I try to incorporate both of them together to tell these stories in an entertaining way, but that also will communicate truth uh, in, in a way that's not as abstract, you know, it's more concrete. And yeah, excellent. Um, so this book, Jezebel, why this story for the first uh, volume of the Chronicles of the Watchers? Well, okay. So um, it, it it's not, like I could tell it, you know, you could tell a hundred different stories from the Bible, right? And so you have to pick ones that that sort of embody things that are I'm most interested in, or that I'm I, I'm trying to pick stories that I think this watcher paradigm would would be an interesting story to tell along with it. And um, of course, this notion of Jezebel bringing in Baal worship into Israel obviously is is one of those you know um, you could also tell the story of Moses and the gods of Egypt right because remember when God did the you know did the plagues and scholars mm-hmm. will tell us that those plagues are are probably judgments on the various deities of right. Egypt who stood for those various things so these are the stories that interest me that draw me but also if it's true that there are watchers over these other nations in, in the ancient world, I thought, well, eventually I want to tell those stories as well, like maybe in the Amer- the Americas or the British Isles oh, cool. or, or China. So the second book is already available called Qin, Dragon Emperor of China. And the word Qin is spelled Q-I-N. That's the original language. Well, it's the Anglicized version of their language, but... Um, and it tells the story of the first emperor of China in the ancient world and how that is 
is has watchers behind it but also it's tied to the tower of babel and all this kind of cool stuff um and so that's my first stepping out so the books are going to be standalone books and not necessarily in chronological order uh but they'll all traffic within this universe of these watcher territorial um principalities right um but i also want to integrate history i want to make sense of history by by showing the spiritual world behind the history and that's a lot what the bible does too anyway so so that's that's one of the things that draws me but jezebel in particular also i think is very relevant to today you know um we've got a lot of things and a lot of things in the book you'll see it connected to today like for instance um you know feminism today is a very powerful force in society and and it's it's changing it's changing a lot of things and Jezebel sort of represents that same sort of um goal of women to sort of take power back but also when she brings Baal worship into Israel she brings child sacrifice because Baal worship included child human sacrifice right and we think oh, in today's world it's like it's so abs- it sounds so distant to us who would ever do that right and of course we live in a world that's been affected heavily by even even non-christians have been affected heavily by christianity you know christianity got western civilization got rid of that human sacrifice but i try to make sense of what was it like to live in a world where that was acceptable and it, it, human sacrifice isn't just this let's sacrifice humans they were doing it for a reason they were doing it to appease the gods so for instance when when there was um and i talk about this in the novel too when there when there was a, a famine or a natural disaster or a war the no, the the noble people of the city the the rich people would sacrifice some of their children for the benefit of the city the, so it was basically noble children not the poor they would sacrifice noble children to appease the gods to turn their their wrath away right so i bring that into the story and if you think about it um you know the pro life movement has already made this connection many times that abortion is a form of child sacrifice to the on the altars of convenience for those who seek to appease the gods of fate to to have a happier life like you know how many people have said well i don't want to bring a child into this world cuz they're just going to suffer or you know those kinds of things or my life will be suffering because of it so they sacrifice their child for the benefit of their happiness in the future that's very similar to what they did in the ancient world so you'll see some of these connections going on because i write stories about the ancient world cuz i'm fascinated by it but in the end and as much as i do say that the way they interpret things there's a lot of differences there's also a lot of similarities why because human nature does not change culture changes science and technology knowledge changes but human nature does not so we're driven by the same passions the same sins the same goodness that we always have been and in that sense you can learn in an ancient story by analogy something for today and that's my goal with the Jezebel story and, and you'll see a lot of references to modern day political not modern day but you'll see a lot of analogies to the political world we're in t- mm-hmm. today the the moral world with abortion with feminism with all these things it's it's in there man and um i i just find that to be so so fascinating and really a way to 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 see things through a different lens that gives you a different perspective on things absolutely and you're uh self published right mhm mm-hmm. so what uh, you know you're putting it out there on 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 amazon it's is it all on amazon exclusively 
everything's exclusively on Amazon. All my books are in um, ebook, paperback, and audiobook. And the uh, Je- Jezebel audiobook will be available in, within a few days. Cool. And, and um, it's all exclusively on Amazon. I'm self-published. And in fact, it's kind of funny because in, it, I, people have really been taking to this this universe. I stumbled upon it years ago out of my own interest. I honestly didn't think it, it would be a big seller. But now I, I'm the best-selling author in biblical fiction. And normally biblical fiction is dominated by women writing books about women in the Bible for women, you know? So the story of Sarah, the story of Rachel, the, you know, and all of a sudden I'm writing these books with these masculine heroes and strong women who support them, but they're basically action warriors and spiritual war. And bam, I'm just dominating the top 20 of, of the biblical fiction category. And, and I'm, I'm saying that not to boast. I'm saying it because it surprised me. It shocked me, but it tells me People are really interested in in a masculine faith uh, uh, that leads with with strength and spirituality and supernatural respect, you know, that kind of a thing. And and that's what all these stories are are about to me. I'm I'm wrestling with, you know, what does it mean to be a, a muscular Christian? You know, remember that movie Chariots of of fire from mm-hmm. you know the 80s and that was a phrase they used was muscular christianity mm. something that really uh brings a strong answer and a strong answer to evil in this world because evil is not going to be vanquished by political correctness and by being um you know uh, uh fearful in identity politics that's that's just going to make it worse you've got to stand up to evil by standing up with strength and sometimes that that's a, a brutal a brutal reality well, who then is uh, reading reading your books? Who do you think who's your? Can you get those demographics or or not? Well, my demographics that I've drawn from my own email list, um, as as well as uh, Facebook advertising, is I think it's roughly sixty percent male, forty percent female. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is a good sign to me because it tells me that women also love to have masculine heroes, right? Uh, and, and look, I mean, I, I, I love a good romance, so I, I seek as best as I can to have uh, strong, um, loving relationships in my stories. For example, in the Jezebel story, there I, have, I do a sort of a counter, counter picture. You've got Jezebel and Ahab, and their relationship starts out good, actually. Many people think, oh, Jezebel must have been an evil, wicked witch of the West. But no, she wasn't. She, she was probably beautiful and and they probably had a good marriage and all that, but it ultimately starts to degenerate as years goes go on. But I I show a counter picture of that by showing um, Jehu who, who, and the marriage to his wife and his relationship with his wife, and and you know to ho- hopefully show the opposites type of thing, you know. So uh, I seek to have strong women in my stories, but um, I also. Um, you know, I write what I think is actually lacking in today's world, which is these strong masculine heroes. And uh, you you also write or have rewritten at least some of the chronicles of the Nephilim for kids too, right? No, actually, what I've done is over the years I realized that I wanted to get I wanted to reach more people. When I first wrote, it was sort of R rated, but I just edited the I edited the original series to make it 
PG-13 so that teens could read it. So I no longer, I used to have a young adult version of Chronicles of the Nephilim, but I just took those out of publication and I edited the original so that they're readable for all ages. And of course, that doesn't dilute it in any way. It's just, it's just less explicit in some ways, but I still deal with the hardcore sin and evils that are there. So it's not for little kids to read by, by any means, but uh, yeah, absolutely young adults can, can read it and, and enjoy it as well. Nice. And you're reading the audiobooks yourself? Because some of those names, my word. Yes. Yes, I know. And I don't know if I get all the names right anyway, but I think I do get them more accurate than most people would. Yeah, there's a lot of weird words and names and stuff. And and I do read them myself. And, and uh, you know, so far people have said that they love it and they like me reading it because it's sort of like they like hearing the author read it because the author is very intimate with what they wrote. And, and I'm able to sort of communicate most accurately what what i'm what i'm trying to communicate i'm not a professional actor but i'm definitely a good reader and so that's that makes it worthy and the audiobooks do you read the appendix too or not i do wow i do okay absolutely because people are interested in all of that stuff so yeah yeah so that's that's kind of cool excellent so um you know there's so many I, i think the uh i think i read your books and then i listened to an interview with you um where somebody was asking you, how did you think the Nephilim were going to uh, reappear at the end of the the age? Yeah, and um, very refreshingly, you <laughs> you you kind of said, "Well, I don't believe the same way you do," you know. So that was kind of nice uh, yeah. to to hear that. Um, so you said earlier on that you're reformed, and you know you're you consider yourself in a, in a mainline Christian, you know. Yeah. Uh, way, but there, you know, I'm sure. Again, it took me a long time after studying the Bible for many years, listening to other people, you know, teach things to me or whatever, to kind of have to. I'll be honest, you have to almost relearn uh, the entire yes. storyline of the Bible. Uh, yes, because and and here's the key is I, I, I don't want to interrupt you. you no, no, no. Go ahead. Saying. No, that's well, all. Because, yeah, it's just it's 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 a it's it's a your mind gets blown, I guess. Yes. Well, here's the thing. It's we live in a world of modernity and modernity is this sort of, um, you know, because of the enlightenment and science, we have a science infected world in which there's some good, obviously, to science. There's a lot of good to science, but there's a lot of negative elements where um, uh, where we become so focused on empirical senses, what we can sense and what we can measure and rationality and logic. These are all good things, part of truth and human existence, but they're not the only way to know truth, and they're not the only things, but they become idolized to go- to the status of God such that only that which is you know logical and, and that which is scientifically measurable are what we think are true or, 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 uh, or is knowledge, and that it really bypasses so much of the human experience, the existence, emotions, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And so consequently, our Christianity has been affected by that. And I was affected by it as well. And I, I think we see a lot of this in, you know, in a intellectualized Christianity. And of course, when I say that, I'm not saying like some postmoderns might say, you know, oh, therefore toss out reason, toss out logic and science. You know, I don't I'm not saying that. But I do have a commonality with the postmodern understanding in that, in that I've realized there are limits to science and logic and reason. They are good tools, but there's limits, and that there there's a whole other 
understanding of reality that we need to, you know, with such as, like I said, emotions and uh, transcendence and spirit and stuff like that. And so um, I think what happened is, is Christianity has been heavily infected by an intellectualism and it's, it was the desire to br- answer skepticism. Right. Skepticism it was a reaction. Came in with, yeah. Yeah. As a reaction, science comes along and says, ah, oh, the Bible's nothing but myth. See, look at it, it's all wrong scientifically. And so Christians thought, well, we've got to answer this, and we've got to show that the Bible is true, and it's historically accurate and scientifically accurate. But unfortunately, they we ended up using the same rules and standards of science and reason, and the ancient world didn't necessarily use those rules. So you can't necessarily do that, and, and what happens is that creates this sort of understanding of anything that's not written with this scientific precision for example is is just not good it's not worthy and that's ridiculous you well, know, that's just not yeah it's 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 really bad on numerous levels but one thing that and we won't delve into this because we're almost out of time but i cringe every time i hear someone say if you don't take genesis one literally then yes you, then you're not a christian you might as well throw yes. out the entire text and yes I, it's yeah, that, that's horrifying that's that's what I'm referring to is that's the extreme that Christians became and and they don't realize that well actually the way Israelites wrote history is not the same way we write history they're not scientific in fact I'm convinced now that Genesis 1 we read that and we automatically assume it's the creation of the physical universe and I don't think that's how they wrote creation stories creation stories in the ancient world isn't about the physics of physical creation it's using the creation of things of the physical world as a metaphor to describe spiritual truths. And so creation stories in the ancient world are not physics books, right? So consequently, you cannot read Genesis as physics. You have to read it as theology and understand well, what's the point that they're trying to make there. And that's a very good example of that where it's like, I, so I, I no longer um, you know, have that sort of, hyper i call it hyper literalism where everything's literally as you read it and it's just not the way they wrote it so you're imposing your own bias right on god's word if you're saying well that's obviously literal because it sounds literal to me well guess what that you know and the way to understand this is the bible uses genre just like we do so there are different genres of literature right like when you write a a parable you are obviously intending it not to be literal, um, and, and that's a parable. It's an analogy, so you don't always say it's a parable, but the, within the cultural context, we can, see, we can understand it is. Well, the way they told parables and stories or whatever in the past is different than the way we do, so we've got to realize that it's not always spelled out. And so some of those genres, for example, would be creation, creation stories. The purpose of them is not we we would write a creation story now in terms of where did all the physical stuff come from? They weren't even interested in that. So you can't interpret it that way. Yeah, that's a great example of how, uh, and the same thing goes with history, right? You know, I mean, we think, oh, history has to be objectively, scientifically precise in everything that happened. And it's like, they didn't write history that way. You know, they would often describe, like I mentioned, you know, they would describe a historical destruction of a city. They would use the terms... The earth was shaken, the mountains fell, the the sky rolled up like a scroll, and they're basically describing the spiritual reality of the fall of earthly and heavenly powers in the destruction of an earthly city. 
And they did that within their history, right? So that's when you begin to understand. It's not saying, that, oh, the Bible's all myth, and the Bible's all figurative, and the Bible's all poetic. No, it's not saying that at all. It's saying the Bible uses these things, metaphor, figurative, uh, poetry. It uses it. It integrates it into its prose, into its literature, in a way that you have to study uh seriously to understand or you're going to misunderstand it and i I think people are just really uh, scared to do that you know the book of revelation you know uh i grew up in the assemblies of god and it was taught you know revelations like a newspaper and john saw this vision that he couldn't really explain because he never saw tomahawk helicopters and missiles Mm -hmm. so he explained it the best way that he could um, and that was the genre. The genre was, um, you know, a newspaper. It was just explained by a caveman, essentially. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Which, you know, obviously is is not the case. And if you look back, there, Revelation has, well, you know, I'm just preaching to the choir, but so so many references to the Old Testament um, that if you Absolutely. understand both of those in in or try to understand them in its original context, in its original culture, yes. you'll get a whole different uh, understanding of 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 that book you know for sure yeah but well they use you when you see that language in revelation is that literal or not well you go back in the old testament and you find they use the same exact language of events that we know are clearly historical and that's how you kind of learn that but there's a well let me give one little example from the story of jezebel that that i bring into my novel we read jezebel and we think that's her name well it wasn't her name the name Jezebel is actually an insult. It's like a word play on her real name. We have uh, in archaeology we have found the name Jezebel from Tyre, possibly even her own seal. And but it's it's the name is actually Isabel, or I anglicize it as Isabel. So in my novel, you start reading, you'll, you'll be reading Isabel, and you're saying, "Wait, I thought her name was Jezebel, right? It wasn't. It was Isabel." The Bible writers hated her so much that they changed her name to Jezebel. And the word Isabel in Phoenician language means where is the prince, where is Baal, right? And that was part of their ritual, of their fertility ritual that they used, and her name reflects that. Well, the Bible writers call her Jezebel, which means there is no prince but excrement, but dung, wow. right? All right. And so, and, and it makes a plan and it explains it in, in Second Kings. It says, you know, Jezebel, Jezebel will be on the field like dung. And so it tells us why it's naming her that. It's basically insulting her. And by the way, that's not the only place the Bible does that. There's plenty of other places where uh, they, they call these names, but they're actually insults. And that's kind of interesting. So I bring that into my story as well. There's another example where you know, you hear, if you read the Bible, you hear that, you see the name Ashtoreth mm-hmm. as, a, as a name of a goddess. Interestingly, the, the word goddess is never used in the Bible. Now, they do, they'll quote the name of the goddess, but they'll never, there's not a word for goddess, only a word for gods. And I, th- I think that's sort of how, you know how like when you want to really insult someone, you ignore them? You pretend they don't exist. Hmm. I think that's what they're doing. They're saying they're not even using the word goddess because it's so disgusting to them. They'll only use the name. But there's another thing, the word Ashtoreth. Well, what's that? What goddess is that? Well, if you look it up, you find out there's no goddess with the name Ashtoreth, but there is a goddess with the name of Ashtart that, that they are referring to. 
And what happens is, and there's other names where they do the same exact thing, but this is one example. Um, so they took the word for shame, which is bosheth, and shame is about, you know, abomination. And they took the bowels from bosheth, put it into the name of Ashtart, so it came out with Ashtoreth. Oh, wow. So it's a shameful god, right? And and so, again, th- this is what they did a lot, and we would never know that unless you study the language. And uh, these are some things that I actually bring about in, in the novel as well. So, again, you know, you're going to read the story of Jezebel and Elijah, and you hear the Mount Carmel with the calling fire from heaven. You've got battles and biblical stories of love and romance going on in the story, but you're also learning about the way they, they understood these things within those stories. Excellent. Well, we're out of time. This has been a, another great conversation. Um, thanks again. And can you uh, just point everybody to where you want them to go? Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Um, so yeah, everything is, like I said, all my books and stuff is all at Amazon. So if you want to go direct and just really uh, take it seriously and look look at the stuff there, fine. But if you're, if you're curious about going in more in depth and finding out a little bit more, well, my website, gadawa.com, has all my series and I have lots of free articles i have lots of artwork related to this series and i i have pictures and all kinds of cool stuff so you can find a lot more information at gadawa.com but uh if you want to um buy it everything's at amazon all right thanks a bunch thanks for having me